Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. We're in the early episodes of a series focusing on forgiveness and reconciliation in all its forms. Family rifts, reparations, healing the planet, and inevitably criminal justice reform. And in fact, that's what our first few episodes have been about. Last week, we talked to Maurice Shama about the rise and fall of the death penalty. This week, Liliana Segura, a reporter for The Intercept, will explain how the death penalty's waning popularity hasn't saved those still on death row. People are still being put to death. And you may recall that the Trump administration expended a lot of energy in its last months restarting federal executions for no really good reason except that they could. Liliana will explain why we should still care and what the reverberations of those Trump administration killing spree executions might be. And she'll tell us a couple of tragic stories and an important, hopeful one. And she is coming right up. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Businesses have had to be flexible this past year, from working remotely to pivoting their business models for long-term survival and growth. The podcast industry has probably changed forever. Recording over Zoom means we all have video now, and we can book a wider array of people because there's no studios involved. Performing arts companies are streaming stage shows, musicals, and symphony concerts online. E-commerce has probably changed forever, too. There are whole categories of products we never really thought about, and now we do. Sanitizers, light rings, Zoom casual clothes. If you're in charge of hiring for your business, these pivots have made your job even more challenging, especially if you have to hire for brand new roles. Thankfully, there's one place you can always count on to make hiring faster and easier. ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. When you post a job to ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top boards with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites these people to apply. It's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Let ZipRecruiter take finding qualified candidates off your plate so you can focus on growing your business. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Liliana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I think we should get to what's sort of still news uh, first, which is the fact that the Trump administration went on a literal killing spree before he left office. It didn't get a lot of attention, I feel like. And it <laughs> I don't make the question too long, but I'll just put my opinion in, which is that it seemed like such an uh, obvious act of cruelty, like for no other point. But I'm curious, what can you tell us about that? The moment that Donald Trump was elected, those of us who cover and pay attention to the death penalty knew that it was only a matter of time before federal executions were likely to restart. You know, Trump <laughs> was very uh, clear in his rhetoric um, about his enthusiasm for state violence, um, but the death penalty specifically. Uh, he, you know, defended the convictions of the Central Park Five. Uh, he, we knew how, where he stood on this. And if there was anything surprising, it was that um, it didn't happen sooner. You know, when Jeff Sessions uh, became his AG, it was like, okay, we know where this is headed. Um, but it wasn't until 2019, uh, the summer of 2019, that um, 
Bill Barr finally made that announcement. So it was a little bit of a surprise that the executions didn't start right away. But then Barr comes in. And do you think he just had more enthusiasm? Well, I do think he had enthusiasm. Uh, little did I know how much enthusiasm he would have. Uh, but but it, it also was to do with a practical problem that dates back to the Obama administration, really, which is a problem that a number of death penalty states have, have confronted. And that's to do with uh, lethal injection, with the kind of formulas we've devised to uh, kill people on death row. Um, going back years now, um, states um, and the federal government have struggled to uh, get access to lethal injection drugs, or rather drugs we have chosen to use for lethal, for lethal injection. Um, and, and there's been just a ton of litigation uh, around this issue. Uh, states have sort of devised new formulas, new ways to kill people. And at a certain point, the federal government decided that, you know, the way that they used to use, that was the prevailing method that, that states were using too for a long, long time, it was no longer available to them. They decided to essentially copy the, the execution method that uh, states like Texas um, Missouri, Georgia were using, which was essentially a massive do a dose of um, pentobarbital. Um, but there was a bunch of litig litigation around this, this execution method, uh, as, as we predicted. People might not realize the magnitude of the problem of the lethal injection drugs. I find it, there's part of me that it appeals to my sense of irony and cynicism that this is such an issue. Part of it, as I understand it, is companies don't want to give them the drugs to kill people. Like, uh, And the other part of it is something that people probably don't think about, which is we have no idea what might be the best way to kill someone. I mean, this, there's a kind of long and sordid history that has shaped the way we execute um, people in this country. Um, but at every turn, what's fascinating is, you know, we replaced hanging with the electric chair because it, it was decided that, you know, there had been some really ugly botched executions by hanging and the electric chair was this new innovation. Electricity was the, the future, you know, and this was a painless sort of high, highly scientific way to, to, to kill people. Um, and, and so you sort of saw that, you know, uh, generations ago. And then uh, inevitably, um, the, the electric chair leads to some really ugly, high-profile botched executions, sort of from the start, frankly, um, and, and sort of people start to move away from that. And, and actually, the advent of lethal injection, as we knew it for a long time, goes back to um, a medical examiner in Oklahoma who was basically called upon by lawmakers in Oklahoma to come up with a, a better method of execution. You know, they had decided that the electric chair was just too gruesome and lethal injection was going to be the way to go. And he devised what became the kind of formula that was copied by states for years and years, which was this three drug method um, using initially a, a sedative. The first drug, crucially, was sodium thiopental, um, which is an anesthetic, uh, and, and then followed by this paralytic that was uh, supposed to, you know, sort of freeze the person in place, but also um, suppress uh, respiration, followed by uh, the, the drug that would actually kill people, you know, by inducing a heart attack. We now have talked about the cruelty of the death penalty. So that leads naturally to the Trump administration. So Delays because of all these challenges to lethal injection. But I guess somewhere they got to go ahead. Yeah. So they went ahead. The executions finally 
started in July of 2020. Uh, and what the federal government did was schedule basically where they could multiple executions in the, in the course of the week. Um, some basics, all of the federal executions take place at the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, that is where federal death row is. That's where federal death row has been basically since the very end of the 1990s. Um, so, you know, 20 some odd years. Uh, and, and the federal execution chamber uh, was constructed around that same era, kind of mid to late 90s in the wake of the crime bill, which vastly expanded federal executions under Clinton. Um, but so uh, those executions um, started up in July. They set three uh, execution dates for one week. Um, part of this was just a practical concern. They were bringing execution teams from out of state. Uh, it's pretty well understood that the warden at that penitentiary did not want his own people uh, participating in or carrying out these executions. Um, and, but, you know, Whereas a year before we had anticipated these executions were likely to resume soon, we never could have anticipated that there would be a global pandemic that, you know, sort of made this whole endeavor that much more ghoulish and, and dangerous, frankly. And so it was really interesting in the run up to that first set of executions, the local paper in Terre Haute, you know, uh, ran an editorial kind of saying, you know, no matter how you feel about these executions, you know, we can agree that these don't have to have to happen now. Um, it's dangerous for all involved. It's dangerous for the community. Um, the Bureau of Prisons completely ignored those concerns. And I want to ask a question about that. Now, there's, you know, pretty well known that, that COVID is a real menace in confined situations like prisons, like jails. I assume that the enhanced danger from COVID in conducting an execution is the lack of social distancing. It seems weird to say it that way, but that is what it is, right? Is you're getting a bunch of people in a room together. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And and frankly, I applied to witness, um, I think, eight out of the 13 times. There were 13 executions. I believe I applied to witness eight times. And frankly, the times that I didn't apply was were primarily because I was really concerned about COVID. I did not trust uh, the Bureau of Prisons at all to be keeping uh, members of the press safe up until the executions. I had spent the year reporting largely on federal uh, prisons and federal halfway houses and the kind of COVID situation in those in those places. And so I was really really nervous uh, about about traveling about the prospect of witnessing, apart from just being nervous about witnessing, I've never witnessed an execution for all the years I've spent doing this reporting. And so, um, but yeah, I, I was not approved, but I certainly saw up close um, all these 13 times that I was on the ground in Terre Haute, the way in which, you know, media witnesses are put into these vans. There's two vans. They have to sit there sometimes for hours, uh, you know, in these vans uh, with the windows rolled up. Um, everyone's wearing masks, but we know <laughs> that that's not a foolproof. Um, and just these incredibly long delays uh, and these long waits, which took place in the vans or in these very small cramped rooms, these witness um, sort of chambers. Uh, people listening might think, oh, well, yes, the Trump administration, cruel right up to the very end. How terrible. Now he's gone. Why do we have to think about this? Do you want to talk about why we should still be thinking about this? 
when when the first piece I wrote, literally the first piece I wrote when Bill Barr made his announcement was about how this was the Democrats legacy coming down, coming back to haunt us uh, because so many of these cases and the expansion of federal death row, this all happened uh, uh, largely, mostly on 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 the Democrats watch, um, you know. Back in 2016, when I was convinced that my job for the next four years was going to be to hold Hillary Clinton to account from the left, uh, I had written a really critical piece about her um, her defense of the federal death penalty uh, when it was, you know, Bill Clinton's legacy to have um, helped oversee this massive expansion, um, these these cases that sent so many people to die um, in the, in the mid to late nineties. Um, so so I think people need to understand that this was not um, an aberration that sort of existed under Trump, and now we're kind of you know fine. Um, so yeah, this is this is still a system that is 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 taking lives um, and, and really traumatizing people on all sides. Uh, a lot of the coverage that I have devoted myself to, especially during Trump's killing spree, was trying to talk to some of the people that many people don't think about when it comes to executions. You know, there's a lot of focus on the families of the uh, of the victims. There's a lot of focus on on the person who's being executed. Um, a lot less frequently do we hear from families of the condemned. A month ago today, uh, we were waiting to see if the last execution, the 13th execution um, of a man named Dustin Higgs was going to go through. I, I got to know his sister pretty well, and she was there in Terre Haute, um, and she was getting ready to go and witness his execution. Um, and what she had told me in our early interviews was that, you know, she just felt like if she could just get six days, you know, six days would make the difference because she knew that if Biden came in, that if they could get a delay, you know, Biden was not going to be uh, starting up this machinery uh, the way that Trump Trump had. Um, and she didn't get those six days uh, and it was sort of heartbreaking. Going to break in to hear a word from our sponsors. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. So my friend John Moe has a podcast about mental health, and he was interviewing me the other day, and we talked about how recovery in a mental health context isn't linear. It's managed, not cured. I take some great drugs for my mental health, but talk therapy is so important. Talk therapy keeps me connected to other people and to myself. In order to take care of myself, I need to know how I'm doing. And honestly, I need someone else to give me a perspective on that. And I bet you do too. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect a safe and private online environment, making it so convenient you can begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, although financial aid is available. They have therapists trained in areas you may not be able to find in your local area. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. 
As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash friends. My hair is not something I like to complain about. I have hair. Sometimes I hate it. I can wear it up. I can wear a hat. A lifetime of looking for solutions has mostly taught me to just live with it. Because, of course, what I need in a shampoo or whatever is particular to me. I have fine, dense, straight, but frizzy hair. You can't condition it without weighing it down. You can't volumize it without making the frizz worse. There is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to shampoo and conditioner. We need products that are suited for our unique needs. Pros is personalized hair care, and it means I don't have to shop around and I don't have to compromise. Pros knows there's more to you than just your hair type. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, and it is thorough. There were questions you'd expect, like how you style your hair and what your hair is like, but there's also questions about like how much you exercise and where you live because pollution and water type make a difference. With their algorithm and over 50 billion formula combinations, Pros is determined a unique blend of ingredients to treat my concerns. The product I've loved using is their pre-shampoo conditioner. It's the solution to treating my dry, frizzy hair without weighing it down, and it smells delicious. I'm also using hair oil for the first time, which I was hesitant about, but it seems to be making those little broken baby hairs behave. So try pros. If you're not 100% positive that pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they will take the products back. No questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take their free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash friends. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash friends for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off. I just wanted to ask... We're talking about the federal death penalty here, too. And my understanding is the other issue is that if a state wants to continue killing people, they can go right ahead. Like, there's nothing stopping them. As you said, the Supreme Court has never ruled that it's unconstitutional. So and and that seems concerning. (laughs) I live in Tennessee. Tennessee went a long time without carrying any executions, carrying out any executions because, uh, well, primarily because of the similar problems with uh, regard to lethal injection that other states had um, had been facing. And a few years ago, Tennessee started executing people again, and I believe has carried out now seven executions since 2018. Five of those have been carried out in the electric chair. It feels very real, but of course, it's an issue that I really care about and devoted myself to. I, I think a lot of my neighbors, you know, are, are less concerned, but but really should be because this is what the government does in our names. I, I want to turn around a little bit and not look directly at, at the execution chamber, perhaps, but what happens among the people outside it. You've written some really powerful stories about people who come to forgive and reconcile with someone who has killed a family member. Part of what I've learned in my years reporting on the death penalty is how complicated we all are. Uh, What one person 
needs when it comes to closure or forgiveness is really different from what another person needs. And so I, I want to just be careful about how I speak about this, but 201, I cannot think of a, a murder victim's family member who has described feeling better after an execution. You know, the, 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 in these cases, prosecutors often say to juries that sending this person to death row is the only thing that's going to give closure to the victims. This is, you know, very common. Um, in the case of Dustin Higgs, the last man executed in Terre Haute, the prosecutor literally held up a rock and said that if the jury doesn't sentence him to death, you know, this is the weight they're going to be carrying. The victims' families are going to be carrying, you know, and that that his execution will will lift that weight. This is this is what's promised to to survivors, um, to to the loved ones of victims, and that just isn't true. <laughs> you know, it, it part of what actually happens is that these cases drag out for years and decades, and families have to continue to live with the lack of resolution um, that they that were promised. They need they needed a way to confront what happened, but also to forgive because if they didn't do that, it was going to continue to consume them. They were never going to get past it. So some of the most powerful voices against the death penalty going back years uh, come from that experience of being murder victims' families. There was the group Murder Victims' Families for Reconciliation, uh, also known as Murder Victims' Families for Human Rights. <laughs> there's, I think there's, there's two versions of that group. Um, in 2001, when Timothy McVeigh was executed in Terre Haute, the... the um, a, a, a man whose daughter had died in the, uh, in the Oklahoma City bombing ended up forging a bond in relationship with Timothy McVeigh's father. So it was like two dads, um, Timothy McVeigh's father and this guy, Bud Welsh, whose daughter had died in, in Oklahoma City. And so those, those, <laughs> those kinds of um, unlikely uh, bonds um, come from a place of recognition that we don't want to traumatize more families, you know, that, that, that nobody should have to go through what I went through. I think that's really fascinating that these journeys begin kind of out of the murder victims, family member, just not wanting to live with more trauma. Is there a specific story you think illustrates this particularly well? So Bill Pelkey is a man from Indiana. He, his grandmother, uh, Ruth Pelkey was brutally, brutally murdered um, in the, I want to say early to mid nineties, the, the exact date escapes me. Um, but this was a woman who taught Bible school. She was, you know, by all accounts, just a really beloved uh, member of her community, but also, you know, family member. And um, she was uh, brutally attacked, stabbed to death by a group of teenage girls um, in Gary, Indiana. And the youngest of the of the girls who who had attacked her um, looking to steal some money, I think they came away with some paltry amount of money. Um, truly a senseless, horrible, violent murder. Um, but the youngest uh, in, in, in that group uh, who killed Ruth Pelkey was, uh, was a teenager by the name of Paula Cooper. And Paula Cooper was tried for this murder. Um, 
and sentenced to death and became at the time the youngest person in the country on death row. This is before the Supreme Court ruled in 2005 that 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 teenagers, that people under the age of 18 were no longer eligible uh, to 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 get the death penalty. This is before that. Indiana did not have a, a, an age sort of minimum age. Um, so Paula Cooper went to death row at like age 15. And at the time, and the way Bill tells this, told the story is that, you know, he became haunted by, um, well, a number of aspects of the case, but specifically he remembered how Paula Cooper's grandfather was in court and, and was just distraught at the idea that Paula Cooper would be sentenced to death, that she could be executed. And he was saying, they were trying to kill my baby. They're trying to kill my baby. So Bill's, yeah, Bill's grandmother would not have wanted um, Paula Cooper to be executed for, for this. And, and not only did Bill decide that this was something he no longer supported, he got to know, he got to know Paula Cooper's family and then he got to know Paula Cooper and they started, they forged a correspondence uh, and went, that went back and forth for, for years. And eventually, um, supported her release. Her, her, um, sentence eventually was thrown out and, and actually she ended up, uh, getting out of prison in 2003, uh, I'm sorry, 2013. And Bill Pelkey was, you know, right up front, one of the, the people who was most supportive of this, uh, and by then had started this group journey of hope, which was led primarily by people who had similarly been through horrible trauma, um, who themselves had been the victims of attempted murders, who, you know, through their own journeys had come to a place where they just did not believe in the death penalty and didn't want to perpetuate a cycle of trauma. And so Bill Pelkey, I mean, this organization, they were on the ground in Terre Haute in 2001 when uh, Timothy McVeigh um, was executed. They have the journey of hope is a literal um, tour that goes around the country, you know, once a year, they, they kind of choose a different state and they do these stops and, and Bill tells his story. Bill would always tell his story along with a number of other people. Um, they included exonerees, you know, people who had been sentenced to death as innocent people. Um, they included uh, family, loved ones to people on death row. So, so Bill really created a movement out of this trauma um, and the way he always would put it is that, you know, any door that opened as a result of this horrible thing that happened to his grandmother um, that gave him, a, him an opportunity to spread this message of sort of love and forgiveness um, and compassion. And the last word from our sponsors. This episode of With Friends Like These is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Good members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. And this is kind of a weird thing to be excited about, but I have discovered their Ayete washcloth. It's like a fabric loofah, but unlike a loofah, you can actually wash it out after each use and you're not forever wondering if you're just rubbing more dead skin cells into yourself. <laughs> I'm also a fan of their compost bags, of all things. Austin has a municipal compost, which is great, but it turns out if you buy compostable plastic bags, they are expensive and some of them are a little too compostable. They start breaking down like in the can. 
The public goods compost bags do not do that. (laughs) Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make big impact on personal health and the world at large. And public goods uses a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. They plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of their company. Join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched to their new everything store. And we've worked out an exclusive deal just for with friends like these podcast listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They're so confident you will love their products and come back again and again. They're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash friends to receive $15 off your first order. With friends like these is brought to you by stamps.com. Do you remember free time back when there was work and then home and then some of the time was free? There was a time you worked and a time you didn't work. I would like to have that time again. And there is a way to create more time while working from home. Stamps.com. Going to the post office was a nuisance when you could go. Now you can save the same amount of time and put it towards not working at home at stamps.com. That's why I recommend mailing and shipping at stamps.com. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay a lot less with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. And you know, I technically moved here a few months ago, but it turns out that moving takes months. And I'm constantly sending out change of address notes and returning stuff that I bought and then buying stuff and then returning it. Stamps.com makes all of that easier. Stamps.com brings the service of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. It's a must-have for any business. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices or an online seller shipping out orders or a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once the mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts of up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It is no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There is no risk. With my promo code FRIENDS, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in FRIENDS. That's Stamps.com, promo code FRIENDS. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. If we think of that rock as the trauma and the, and the guilt and the pressure that you might feel as a loved one when they're able to lay that down and start to do some kind of reconciliation or forgiveness what kind of changes do you see that 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 week of the first executions in Terre Haute I met with a woman who's who's who, who lived in Terre Haute whose sister um had been the victim of a horrible abduction murder um 
this was a probably one of the most famous um, cases in 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 Vigo County. Uh, it went back, I believe, to the 80s, and the the the, the perpetrator had been sentenced to death in Indiana at the state level, um, and eventually was executed. And I found this woman because her mother had become the most prominent sort of local activist on the pro-death penalty side. She had devoted herself, sort of poured herself into standing in opposition to anti-death penalty activists saying, my daughter was murdered and I believe in the death penalty. And, you know, and I, I had heard from local activists who's, who used to, who talked about how how, how bad it made them feel to, to sort of see that this woman, you know, felt the need to kind of stay, re, revisit her trauma to, to stand in opposition to them and, and, and how painful that all was. But so, so this woman uh, died some years ago, but but she had a daughter um, who was around and I got in touch with her with no expectation she would get back to me. But she did. She wrote back. Turns out she works in a prison as a counselor and she met with me in a park in Terre Haute. And I did not know what she was going to say to me. I did, I, but I, but it was important to me to get a victim's family member's perspective um, on the death penalty, sort of in general, separate from these specific executions. But to see what, you know, what did this mean to her? And what she said was, she at the time that this man Bill Benefield was um, executed for for killing her sister, she had been struggling with horrible problems uh, with addiction. Uh, she was actually in jail. She had done some time. She'd been arrested. You know, she had had a really, really hard time, not surprisingly, after her sister's um, violent death. And she, um, but she was able to, I think she got permission to go and attend, not witness, but be there for the execution uh, of this of this man. And she said, that execution did nothing for me. She said, it did nothing for me. You know, she continued to struggle uh, with addiction. She continued to get in trouble with the law. She, her life was, you know, kind of a mess. And she, she told me that what she ultimately realized she needed was to forgive this this man who had done this to her family because she couldn't move forward. Otherwise it was, it was her, her, she was stuck in this place of trauma, but she reached a point where she, where she needed resolution and, and no longer needed, needed to hold on to this. And, and it clearly changed her life. And she, she connects it to what she sees um, in her own work as a counselor at this prison outside Terre Haute, which is to say, you know, so many of these guys, she, 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 works with um, who are incarcerated are carrying their own trauma and, and are there as a result of, of sort of um, un- untreated issues. I am just curious. So when these family members are able to forgive and maybe even connect, what happens for the person that's been condemned to death? You know, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to say that it's, it's kind of this beautiful process that ends in a way that where everyone is healed. But as you ask that question, I mean, I'm thinking to go back to Bill Pelkey and Paula Cooper, the really tragic um, ending to that story uh, is that, you know, Paula Cooper was forgiven by Bill Pelkey and they forged this beautiful relationship and she was going to go on the journey of hope with Bill and she was going to tell her story. And, um, but in the years after she got out of prison, she she remained really tormented and talk about untreated trauma. I mean, she had never dealt with um, any of what happened and certainly not with her. I think that environment 
death row or prison doesn't really offer you a whole lot of opportunities um, to to grapple in a in a productive way um, with these these questions that we're talking about. And Paula Cooper ended up taking her own life um, in 2015. And so I first met Bill Pelkey when. I first spoke to him directly uh, when I called him up to, to talk to him about Paula Cooper's death. And it was gut-wrenching. And 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 but what I remember hearing from not Bill, but I think Paula's lawyer, who she had gone to work with actually um, in that office in Indiana, um, was that you know, Paula had all this trauma, but she also had not forgiven herself. I think that's probably very common on death row. Certainly the guys I correspond with, um, and now I correspond with a number of people on federal death row. Um, I think it's a really hard question. I am I, certain that many haven't forgiven themselves, um, have a hard time even confronting that. So... There are actually multiple players, right, in this journey of reconciliation and forgiveness that could be multiple people, not just family members and the accused, but those who play a part in the actual execution. Uh, Maurice uh, Shama was on the show, and he's written about how that is a trauma, too. And I, I know you have a story about someone who had been an executioner. The executioner for the state of Virginia, Jerry Givens, over the course of his career with the Virginia Department of Corrections, carried out 62 executions, which is just like a staggering number. I I, I don't know that there's anybody else um, with that record who has sort of, you know, who is uh, who became a public figure, who, who kind of shared that experience. But Jerry Givens, I ended up writing a story about him. He... He carried out these executions and I think sort of very early on compartmentalized that. It was just a job that he was tasked, uh, you know, with doing and carrying out. Um, he didn't share it with his family. He didn't, it was, you know, executioners are anonymous. Um, and he did this work essentially until he was forced um, to leave his job. Jerry Givens got into some legal trouble of his own and actually ended up doing uh, time in federal prison. And it wasn't until the way he told the story. Uh, well, there were two things that ended up really kind of opening his eyes to what he was doing. Um, one was the near execution of a man who turned out to be innocent. He came very, very close to executing um, an innocent man who was later exonerated. Uh, and that was deeply traumatizing for him to realize how close he came to this. Um, but he also later came to reflect on, on what he had been doing and the fact that he had gotten to know, you know, as par part of his job, as perverse as it is, that he, is that he spent time with the condemned in their final hours. He was around their families when they were saying goodbye. He was proximate to all of this. In addition to having been the one literally carrying out these executions, he saw these human beings. And it clearly haunted him. And one thing about Jerry Givens is, despite having told his story many, many times, he didn't always, he didn't always go as far as many of us probably would have liked him to in terms of what that did to him. But it was so clear. It was so clear that it was traumatic for him, that it was traumatic for his family when the truth of his identity came out. Uh, it came out literally in the newspapers after he was uh, 
sentenced to to uh, federal prison. His family, that's how the, his family found out that he'd been killing people for the state of Virginia. Um, and so Jerry Gibbons made it his his goal to tell his story um, as part of the movement to abolish the death penalty. And he did it in Virginia. He did it in California. He did it at, everywhere he was requested to speak. He would go and he would tell his story. And there are a few other figures who who have had a similar trajectory, former wardens who oversaw executions, that sort of thing, but nobody with the kind of record that he had. Um, and yet he, there was a kind of a way in which he would bond with uh, former prison officials who, who shared this kind of, <laughs> what for a long time had been these kind of secrets, you know, the, the, the shame and the, um, I think self-hatred and, you know, a number of people, um, there's a former warden who, you know, described how he ended up drinking a lot, you know, all the ways in which people tried to cope with, with these, these, um, these things that they've been complicit in. So Jerry Givens, um, went to Terre Haute in part to warn the community to say, I have done this, you know, uh, trust me, you don't want your people anywhere near this because it will mess you up. I think in telling his story, I think there was a sort of, um, I think it was probably therapeutic for him to tell his story. On the other hand, uh, one of the things that his, his family said um, at a certain point was that, you know, he probably had a hard time forgiving himself uh, for this. I think this was a form of penance, I think, to, to describe what he'd done and to say, I don't believe in this now. Um, and, and Jerry Givens died of COVID in April of 2020. Um, so I had a chance to meet him just a few months before he died, and I'm glad I did. We've talked a lot about how the death penalty creates trauma for everyone that comes into contact with it. So I, I have to ask, what has it done for you? There was a moment when I came home in November after the execution of Orlando Hall, who was the eighth person put to death. I arrived home from Terre Haute. I was just putting my stuff down. I was about to... to um, I was about to moderate a discussion about the death penalty uh, over Zoom for some activists. And I got a text from the mother of Christopher Villalba, who had been executed in September and who I've gotten to know well. And she sent me a text and she said that one of the guys that she's in touch with on the row wanted me to know that three other men had just been told they had dates and they were being taken to the death watch range. And it just, it just... <laughs> I didn't have time to deal with this because I had to get ready for this thing, but it just felt like I, I had hit a wall. Like I couldn't absorb this right now. I, I couldn't handle the fact that we were going to be continuing to do this into January. I just kept telling my husband, like, I just need to get to the end of the, you know, the end of this, and then I'll be able to sort of take a, take a breath. Um, so, so I think, I think because I've been proximate, I've gotten to know some of the guys on the row. I got, I corresponded with a number of the guys who were executed. Um, oh, I'm certain it's, it's, I mean, it has impacted me. It, coming back from Terre Haute, I sort of, it was always sort of when I would come home and lose momentum and slow down that kind of the weight of all of that would start to really weigh me down. And I definitely had that in the past few weeks. Um, and coupled with COVID and everything else, it's, that's tough. There are degrees of proximity to it, but 
one of the arguments against the death penalty, in my opinion, is that ripple effect of trauma that we don't know where that ends. The children of the executioners. We don't know what we can, I think, assume that it creates issues for them. The families of of the victims, the families of the accused. And yes, I think the people... The people that are just in it, maybe not as closely as the families, but um, if you're writing about the death penalty for how many years? I really got involved in this issue in some form or other in like 2001, but not as a journalist until several years later. But yeah, I've been thinking about this for about 20 years. (laughs) I mentioned on the show, but I don't ask people about it enough, which is so do you have any ways that you'd process it or that you care for yourself? I actually think the writing itself helps me process it. I, I, I've thought this. Uh, I reported on the um, sentencing trial of Dylan Roof, which. It's different from an execution, but talk about second. I mean, I it was just hours of listening to grieving family members describing how his actions had traumatized and ruined, you know, just ruined their lives. And that was really hard. Um, it really affected me, but I think part of the way I was able to process it was just, I had to write some stories about it and it, it allowed me to sort of channel that, you know, into, um, into my work, but I still carry around. I mean, I can't tell you how many, just that trial, you know, some little details, little associations, you know, so the flip, the flip side of the, of the trauma of, of this period, uh, has really been that, these executions gave me a sense of purpose. They, at a time when COVID caused me to really struggle and flail and make me feel kind of directionless and motivated and like I didn't, and overwhelmed and like I didn't know where to pour my energies. This was now something that I had to do. Um, and despite being rejected every time I applied as a as an execution witness to to be there, to be on the ground in Terre Haute, um, to stand up and and bear witness to, to these killings was the most important thing I could think about doing in this moment. Liliana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. If you're inspired by Liliana to take some action, this week we'd like to point you to Equal Justice USA. As an organization, it campaigns against the death penalty as part of a general mission to transform justice from a system of punishment and harm to one of healing, equity, and genuine accountability. They promote cross-ideological cooperation on these issues and have partnered with conservatives against the death penalty and created the EJUSA Evangelical Network. They would welcome your money, but if you live in Wyoming or Ohio, they would love to get you involved in ending capital punishment in those states. Find out more about them at EJUSA.com. That's Equal Justice USA at EJUSA.com. And that's it for our conversation with Liliana Segura, who continues to cover criminal justice for The Intercept. Our show next week rounds out a trilogy on criminal justice and reconciliation until we return to it later. We'll be talking to Martha Minow, a professor at Harvard Law and author of the book, When Should the Law Forgive?, in which she asked if it might be possible to forgive those who have committed crimes with the same generosity we forgive the financial debts of corporations. And there's more to come this season about second chances in sports, finding one's adoptive parents, and trying to match up your own insides 
and outsides. This show is a production of Crooked Media, is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino, and Whitney Pastrick is back in Nashville ritually burning items that remind her of 2020. If you have a suggestion or want to tell us about a particularly thorny forgiveness issue in your life, Twitter is a great way to get in touch with me and the show. I am at Anna Marie Cox, and the show is at Crooked underscore Friends. If you want to support the show, we have a t-shirt available at store.crooked.com. It's a retro ringer with a simple motto on the front. Take care of yourselves. <laughs> <laughs>